So again, I'm Lynn Gilliland. This is Leadership Lessons or Lessons from Leaders. And I'm here with Tosca, who was referred to me by someone who had, Tosca had talked at the Interaction Women CEO, if I'm not mistaken, conference. And um, someone who had attended Tosca thought they were so impressed by what you talked about that they wanted you, they suggested that I include you in these video podcasts and we have had several conversations that we um, uh, that I find very intriguing so thank you very much for being on this podcast with me and so to start out with Tosca if you would just give us your full name the name of your business and then tell us how you a little bit about your background yeah. So, Lynn, thank you very much. So, my name is Tosca Bruno van Vijwijken, and I am the principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. Uh, I started uh, literally about four weeks ago with my consulting practice. I have done consulting in the last uh, 10 years, about um, a little bit part-time, but I am now in, in a full-time uh, practice. And Lynn, let me first say and thank you both for this opportunity. I feel honored that you asked me. And let me also say thank you for the fact that you've given me very helpful advice already in the last four, five, six weeks as we started talking. So I'm really grateful for that. You're welcome. Um, a little bit about my background, you asked, right? Yes. So, so I, I think what I find interesting about my background is that I've worked in five or so organizational sectors. Um, and none of this, by the way, is by design. Most of this is pure the kind of ser um, serendipity of what life offers, right? But um, so I've, I've worked, I started out my career in, in working in a really small uh, management consulting firm focused on developing countries, then uh, worked at the European Center for Development Policy Management, which is a European think tank based in the Netherlands, where I'm from, that focuses on policy management processes and advising um, African and Caribbean and Pacific nations um, on, on improving their policy uh, processes. Then I worked for uh, two years, uh, two and a half years in Cambodia, first for the UN peacekeeping operation. So very much a field level position uh, in uh, election uh, organizing and, and monitoring. Then I worked for the US NGO Pact and for a UNDP Cambodia, both as a consultant. And then I ended up in the World Bank for a total of six years where I worked first, uh, I was in charge of um, the um, practice of public participation processes in the bank's um, programs in East and South Asia. So uh, public participation coordinator of those processes. This was back in the mid nineties when the bank was just um, opening up to the, to the realization that it needed to really strengthen its social and environmental practices and its poverty focused practices. So I was part of a large contingent of social scientists that entered the World Bank in the early to mid 90s in order to, to some extent, change the bank from within or at least attempt to do that. Um, I did that for two years, then I uh, ended up in Vietnam for four years where I was uh, for the World Bank in charge of their social development uh, work. And then I accidentally ended up in academia, 
Um, I worked for almost 15 years at the Maxwell School for Citizenship and Public Affairs at uh, Syracuse University, where I ran a program on transnational NGOs. And now I have just transitioned into independent consulting. So it's, it's been an, an interesting arc of about five types of organizational sectoral experiences, and I've really enjoyed the ride. And so that's such a wide range, you know, of, of experience yeah. and background and working with diverse people. And I imagine that now you, there are certain things that you learned there that, that influence how you work or that you, lessons you keep drawing from. Do, can you think of any of those? What? Well, that's a very broad question. So I'm just going to lift out maybe uh, one or two things. So one thing that I think has been consistent across my, my, my practice across those five organizational sectors is I have always sought to work um, or I've always been a combination of wanting to work on public causes, um, having work that is meaningful, but also being quite clear-eyed about what are both my real incentives or motives, I should say, to work in that, and what I think I observe other people's set of, of motives and incentives are. So being wanting public cause work, but also being clear-eyed, having common sense about why why we do this work. And I and I'm emphasizing that because Sometimes the assumption is made that when you work in our work, sector of international development or environment, gender, human rights, etc., that we are all in it because we are such do-gooders. And not only do I think there is a real problem with uh, wanting to be a do-gooder, but I think it's actually not entirely 100% the truth. That is... Uh... So you're the first person that I've ever heard say that, but that, and that's what I think that I, people always say, right? Oh, cause you're in this because you wanted to do well in the world or we're all in this because uh, I thought that's not why I'm in it. I'm curious. I'm interested. I want to see if I can make things happen. I'm not trying to save anybody. So, and that, so that's, you're the first person I've ever heard say that. So hats off to you. That's Thank a little, you. That's a little bit breaking the myth, don't you think? And I, I think it's a very unhelpful myth. Yeah. And it's, I call it the, uh, maybe this sounds too academic, but the, the dishonesty of the discourse that we in international development and, and also within that, my, my specialization of the last 15 years of uh, international NGOs that we find ourselves in, and it's really not helpful for the quality of our work. Um, and I think we need to um, become more honest about that. And what would change if we came, became more honest? Like envision down the road, we, we have become all of us more, it's both often honest to ourselves and to others, because sometimes it's what we say to ourselves. What would be different? Well, what would be different is, for instance, is that we would a little bit more honestly recognize that our self-interests, whether it's individual self-interest or my team or unit self-interest or my organizational self-interest are really woven into everything what we do. Um, it would probably also mean that we would realize 
and we're getting into really kind of big and somewhat provocative areas, but that um, we need That's to... That's what we do, Tosca. That's what you <laughs> and I do. <laughs> <laughs> that we need to come to terms with the fact that, for instance, there will not be a place for all of us. And that includes myself, by the way. Um, there will not be a place for all of us uh, in, the, in the future. There simply cannot be and there shouldn't be. And what, so when we say, as we say so often in, at conferences, that, oh, we're here to work ourselves out of a job, I think that is really a dishonest to say that because almost nobody in the room wants that. Um, uh, but I think it is, uh, it is true. So coming to terms a little bit with what that means for us, for how we do our work, for the role that we as, for instance, NGOs play in the future, for the size and scope of our sector, I think for all of these things, it's, it's a useful question. It's not a panacea. It's just, I'm just adding one more element to our discussion. Does that require courage on your part to say that? Um, yeah, I guess so. Uh, I guess so. Not everybody will take that uh, the right way or, or will take that with gratitude. Uh, but I, I, I genuinely believe in it. And so I feel it's part of my role to keep saying, can we just be a little bit more honest about this? Um, so I don't mind it. And I think it's important to have some integrity and to have authenticity. So this is one way in which I try to be. It's not a big deal, but I, I do think it's being consistent with who I want to be elsewhere in life. I am so grateful for you to you for having that backbone, the spine, the integrity to to speak that out. I don't want to pretend, Lynn, that I'm more than I am, right? I'm not saying yeah, I have backbone I, and courage in all other areas of life. Not at all. But But this is a good one though. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that's, I don't know if this is too big of a leap for you, but you and I had been talking about failure and what did we, what did we learn from it or what did you learn from it? And um, could, could we look at that, whether there's a bridge to it or I'm making a complete left turn, I don't know. Uh, well, thankfully you, you, <laughs> you, 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 uh, uh, pointed me to a few questions beforehand. So, <laughs> so learning from failure and failure in general. So I'll say something first at the individual level. So actually this for me as an individual, my personality traits was really difficult and took me a long time. Why? I don't think I have naturally speaking a lot of resilience against failure. Um, I, I had to learn that over a couple of decades not to feel particularly too discouraged by failure. Mm. Uh, and, and that is also has to, because I think I set fairly high standards in my work. So it, when my work failed or when my team's work failed, I felt that ultimately the box stops with me. Um, and I set these very high standards, and so that would make it really hard for me to 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 be resilient in the face of failure. It's partially through maturing, and partially through things like mindfulness and Buddhism, and the fact that there are many things that you cannot uh, control, and that you have to not beat yourself up too much, but 
pick yourself up the next day and keep going, be compassion. It's through these ways that I, at an individual level, have, have learned how to deal with failure. But I'm not sure. I don't know if this is the level you want me to answer it or whether you want to go to organizational level failure. No, I'm, I, uh, others may be interested in organizational failure, but to me it's more interesting like how when we have failed personally or our team, when we're, we feel responsible, what do we do? Because that's, that's the, you know, for many of us that cuts to the quick, you know, that it can be hard to get back up on your feet or not beat yourself up, especially women beating themselves up. And so you mentioned some practices to just, can you tell us like one or two concrete things you might do? Okay, so part of this is, is a, and I cannot laud myself for practices because, uh, but I, I will get to your question, Lynn, in a moment. I'll just say that on the one hand, I have had personally, um, from a personality trait point of view, had took me quite a while to build resilience for reasons that I've already told you. At the same time, I'm fortunate enough, and there is that is purely luck, I think, that I'm also actually, I, I am resilient in a way that the next day, I'll think, okay, we're doing this again. Well, picking yourself and we keep going. And I have a fair amount of elasticity in that sense. Now, practices, so one is, is this idea of, for instance, being really clear was did we or did I fail through a fault of my own? Or was this avoidable or not, in other words? Or was this actually through a bunch of factors, many of which, not all of them, but many of which were not in my control? So this idea of not grasping for things that actually I cannot um, uh, control myself. I, I, it took me a long time to learn. And that grasping... And the insight around grasping comes, comes in my case from mindfulness and Buddhism. And I used to live in Southeast Asia. So I have a, I was exposed in such a way that it helped me kind of naturally uh, take that up. Um, I will say the other thing that I found is, but again, only in the second part of my life. So it comes with maturity in my case is that the only thing you can do with failure after it's happened is not look back too long, mm. but learn from it. It's trying to be, conscious in the moment saying okay so what is the thing that i need to not do next time and then try to remember that and then to also at a third level understand that certain failures that have to come back to my personality again again you hear me talk a lot about self-awareness right um we'll just <clears throat> i will fail and fail and fail and fail right and then you need to ask for forgiveness of other people while at the same time still keep working on trying to not be triggered into the same failures as frequently does this make sense or not it does and so the what is the self-talk the bits that, that if i'm tracking one is you have a process that you follow not these aren't your words but what do you have control over what didn't you have control over and then knowing where your failures are so there's a huge level of a, a self-awareness or at least attempt because you know we all have we're better at some self-awareness than others and asking for um asking for forgiveness and keeping working on it whatever the thing is right 
Yeah, and also being really um, transparent if you as a leader have failed in front of your team, right? Mm. To say, yes, I screwed up here. And I actually find that fairly liberating. Uh, so even though I can be really kind of beating myself off in the moment over why did I do it, I, I have to own up to it because uh, I actually feel better afterwards. And secondly, I think from an organization or team culture perspective, if you showcase that you say, I failed, I should have done this differently, um, um, it, it, it walks the talk. Can I just say something about, I, I facilitated a session on uh, for women CEOs of interaction back in December at the women CEO retreat that you mentioned at the introduction. And that was actually on personal resilience. And without going into a long story about what we covered, one thing at the end that's, that I remember, uh, because this was actually based on the work of a colleague of mine at Syracuse University, uh, a lot of what I presented was actually her work, and I made sure to, to give her full credit, is that the saying of CEOs, the buck stops with me, is, is true at one level, because one has to be accountable, etc. Absolutely. But it's not very helpful for being uh, resilient in the face of, of stress factors or failure or, or very challenging situations. You have to understand, again, that there's often so many factors at play that your personal failure or, uh, yeah, is, is only probably one of the explanatory variables so how does that fit then with that's very interesting that with being responsible like i have to be 100 percent responsible for every i have to take responsibility how does that balance out with well it's not my fault that those people are misbehaving or it's a situation or yeah, no, that's 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 a very fine line, and I'm yeah. not saying I have the the wisdom, but I do think there is a a, a slight yellow um, gray zone between the two, where I'm not saying I'm not taking responsibility, right? Um, because I am, but from an in terms of a personal resilience perspective, to also understand that if you, even if you, if we go, I hope you can follow me, I'm, I'm jumping around here towards complexity theory and thinking. There are so many interwoven factors often, as I said before, that yes, I have personal responsibility. And if the organization feels that that means that uh, I have to be declared as not being competent in certain area, then it's upon me. And I have to own that and own up to that, but also understand that from a learning perspective, it may not be as simple as that all of the box stopped with me. So to be able to move on. I, I, I think that I'm the bits that I, the, what I'm taking from this is knowing that there is uh, so many things outside of our control but still, what how, what can I do within this? It's not all my yeah. fault. But I do have to learn, at the very least. I right. very strongly believe as the leader, as learner. Right. And as, as my colleague, Catherine Girard, to whom I own a lot and who's been uh, one of my, my mentors in my work at Syracuse University, as she says in one of her presentations, 
if you as an individual leader cannot learn, then how can the organization learn, right? So I also need to be seen to be learning. Um, yeah. Thank you. That's, I love that. Um, and the reason I love it is this is what I want for leaders. And, and, and it's, you know, for all of us, not just leaders. And we all have different uh, abilities to learn or capacity. I don't know what the word is. And, and some of us, you know, it, it's, a, it's a leader is learner. I ought to rename my video podcast as that. Um, just in the, a few minutes that we have, I wanted to definitely touch on what, you know, your thoughts for women, up and coming women leaders, what advice would you have for them or thoughts do you have for them? Uh, wow, yeah, there's a lot written about that. I'm not sure that I would have anything really original to say about that. Um, it is interesting to me that when you know researchers do this, these surveys of what images come to mind when we talk about leaders, it's still a man right yeah. and it's it's and it's so it's a it's a white man um i see at the same time our sector in the ingo sphere at least in the u.s the leadership uh, sphere there i see uh in the last 10 years a rapid increase in the number of top leaders either top tier or just below c-suite of women senior leaders um a rapid growth in those numbers um, except for the very largest INGOs. I'm saying that anecdotally, so I'm saying it with a lot of caveat and caution, but that's my anecdotal impression. Um, we know that, so we know that women these days feel probably slightly less pressure to imitate the leadership style of men. I also don't want to essentialize, essentialize women leaders as leading in a different way. But I've done some work in my um, role as a designer of, of senior leadership training work on uh, a concept of post-heroic leadership. It's not my concept. It's a concept by Joyce Fletcher that my colleagues and I at the Maxwell School have found to be very helpful, which basically says um, that leaders we need to really move away from this idea. And it's actually coming back to our earlier conversation around courage and authenticity, etc. that leaders do not have to be heroes. They do not have to be the, the hard charging person that that leadership image that we, we inherited from the private sector, or even there it's more and more questioned, but that leaders who are developmental in their outlook, right? They're focused on developing other people in their organization. Um, they are focused on shared leadership. They're focused on learning from failure, including they themselves. Also what we just talked about, admitting failure, learning from failure, etc. Humility that are focused on, that have strong collaborative skills. All of these skills that can be captured by, for instance, a term like post-heroic leadership, there is some evidence that women have a slightly higher propensity towards that style of post-heroic leadership. And that is a style 
that I think offers a lot of value to organizations and, and to the world. So I hope that women will own that. I love that. I, I, uh, I'm regretful that we can't go any deeper into that subject. So maybe this will be chapter one and we can do chapter two another I'm time. I'm happy to do another uh, interview like this. I, I enjoy this so much, Lynn. It's so, it's just so, I love interviewing. I love being interviewed because it helps me uh, articulate and reflect better in my own mind. So happy to do that if that's helpful. Um, so Tosca, let, let me thank you then for being with us on chapter one with Tosca. And, uh, and <laughs> we will talk again. That sounds good. I enjoyed it and I look forward to having another opportunity and wishing you the very best.